First Corinthians chapter nine. Thank you, Michaela, for leading and doing a great job. All right, so First Corinthians chapter nine tonight, um, and the title of what we are looking at is "We Are All Things to All Men," and the reason is because that's what Paul tells us to do. That's what he said that he would do, and I think that we should follow his example because, well. That's what Jesus did, and that's what Paul did, and God used both of them pretty well. So I feel like he could probably use us too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and our key thought, you can probably already guess what it is, is to be all things to all men. So you can fill in those little blanks right there. And I just like step back for a second, zoom out, and look at like our church from a 30,000-foot view, and just think about like us. We are a bunch of people who right now, many of us are in some element of a life change. Some of them bigger than others, some of them smaller than others, but all of us kind of have a little bit of change going on. And I think there's, there's difficulty in that because a lot of times change means that we're uncomfortable. Um, now, I wanted to find out what is the first word whenever I say the word change that pops into your head? Marriage. Okay. All right. Okay. Job diapers. <laughs> okay. You guys got one? Change. What does that make you think of? Challenges. Okay. School. Life. Church. Okay. All right. So she's got all the buckets going. Okay. No, that's cool. Okay. So we all have different interpretations of the word change, right? Um, some of us probably view it in a more positive sense. I tend to see change as a good thing most of the time because I think change, the first word that pops into my head when I hear change is growth. So that's different than a lot of people. Some people like Caleb, you said the word challenge. And so change for many of us oftentimes means something negative and we can ascribe that negativity to it. We hear the word change or this policy is changing or hey, there's something going on and it's going to affect you. And we immediately think, oh no, please not that. And then sometimes we hear about the change and we're like, oh, this is awesome. Now, when I think of diapers, that's definitely not the word that I think of. Um, I think it'll be awesome for Skylar. She will enjoy that very much. And I will be sure to do the laundry and the dishes. I promise. Yeah, I do. I know, I know. I'm cutting that part. Nobody outside of here is ever going to hear that part. I'll deny it if you tell them. So a lot of diapers. So change does mean different things to us. And I also have noticed just in my experience, whenever I'm going up against a big change in life, then a lot of times um, I will try to keep change only in that area of life. So if I'm changing in um, maybe my job, if something that I'm doing for work changes, then I try to keep the other aspects of my life the same. So like my fitness routine would not change. Um, my schedule with Skylar, I would try to keep the same, if that makes sense. So I want these areas all to stay the same. I want these things, if they're going to change, if they have to change, they can change in their lane, and I'm going to try to keep everything else separate from that, right? That's what we normally try to do. And sometimes that's a good thing because that means there's an element of consistency. And I think a lot of times that comes about as a sign of maturity. But I also think there are negatives to that too. We can try to keep our changes in our own lane and keep everything else the same, but sometimes that means that we actually are willing to make that caustic, make it painful for other people even sometimes. And change 
and an unwillingness to change can both be good things, but they can also be bad things. Just like a weapon can be good in the hands of a soldier, but bad in the hands of a robber, change can be good when God is doing it for a purpose, but it can also be bad when we, when we refuse to do things either the same or different. And our refusal to change whenever God presents us with those things sometimes can cause us issues. And that's where we have to realize that sometimes as a Christian, we're not called to be the same. We are called to change. Now, it doesn't mean that our beliefs, our values, our doctrines ever change, but it does mean that the way that we live our lives sometimes looks different. You can't do ministry the same way in Hammond as you can in New York City. We found that out. You can't do that the same way as Guyana. You can't do that the same as Haiti or any of the other 72 Central American countries you've been to in the last week. So we've all been exposed probably to different styles of ministry, different preferences. We've all gone to different sorts of rallies or events or seminars or conferences, and all of them look a little bit different. And as a Christian, that's okay. And we want to keep our core values, our doctrines, our beliefs the same. Sure, we don't change those for anything. And anyone who preaches other than what the Bible holds must be cast out, and you cannot think the way that they think. The problem is there's a lot of stuff that doesn't fit directly in Scripture, and that's where the flexibility comes in. And Paul's going to talk about that tonight. What does it look like to deal with people who are different than you, people who have different beliefs than you, should you change, should you not change? And the answer to that is found in both our title and our key takeaway for tonight. It is to be all things to all men. Now, let's just break down that sentence for a second. So be all things to all men, which means that we're going to look at the people that we surround ourselves with, and we're going to see how they do things. There's certain preferences or certain things that are stumbling blocks for them that are not stumbling blocks for you, maybe. For instance, in New York City, um, I had a friend, Mike. We were doing a, an outreach, and he was handing out flyers on the side of the road. And my friend Mike handed a flyer to somebody, and he had a practice of always complimenting the person. And honestly, he got a bunch of people to come to church that way. He was really nice. But he complimented this man, and he had a big old sleeve of tattoos. He said, hey, nice tattoo. And by all accounts, it was a nice looking tattoo, like it was well done. And so he complimented what he saw and the man got mad at him. And he said, is this, he actually, he left. He walked all the way back down like a block or two. And he looked at the card and he was like, are you a Christian? You call yourself a Christian? And Mike was like, yes, why? He says, because Christians don't compliment tattoos. Christians would look at me and say, you're a sinner. That's what Christians do. You're not a real Christian if you're complimenting my tattoo and handing this out. You're just a hypocrite. And Mike came in, and now he's a younger Christian. He hasn't been saved for a very long time. He came in, and he was heartbroken. He didn't know what to do. He was just trying to lead the man to Jesus, and that ended up backfiring. And he just didn't, I don't know, it was just rough. Sometimes there's people that we see and we do ministry with or we try to minister to that have different perceptions of Christianity than what we have. Now, we know that that happened in Corinth because the Corinthian people, there were some people who just didn't understand that our God is the only God. So remember last week's lesson, meat offered to idols was a big no-no because they thought, well, you can't worship Yahweh, our God. You can't worship Jehovah, our God, and 
these false gods by eating their meat and celebrating alongside them. And Paul says, you don't really know some stuff, but at the very end of the chapter, in chapter 8, which we looked at last week, he said, but you know what? If it would offend you, I would rather not eat meat the rest of my entire life than offend you and keep you away from the gospel. And that's a severe change. I would not become a, a vegetarian if it, I don't know, it would be really hard for me to become a vegetarian to win somebody to Jesus. But Paul was willing to. And he even wrote it out and he spelled it out for them. But it seemed like people were contrary to him, meaning that they argued against him, not just his meat eating, if that makes sense. They didn't like Paul. And so they, they raised some arguments about Paul and they even used these arguments to question his apostleship. Now, one of those arguments was about meat offered to idols. Another one was probably about his um, taking pay from the church, or in this case, actually not taking pay from the church, not collecting a salary. They said, if you're a true apostle, you would collect a salary because it is within your God-given right to do so. They're not wrong that it was his right to do so, but they were wrong that Paul had a choice in it because he did. And they also said, well, Paul, Paul would never be married. If he were a true apostle, then he would never want to be married. He would never even care about marriage. Some others probably would say, well, if Paul were a real disciple, a real apostle, then he would be married because as a former member of the Sanhedrin, he would have to be worthy of that and he would have to be a married person. And if he were married, then they would say, what kind of life is this to drag around a wife all across the world as you do? And they would still scoff at him even if he were married. Didn't matter what Paul did, there was always somebody fighting against him. Which meant that there was always somebody believing those people. They didn't know why they believed these people other than the fact that these guys taught them something about Paul. And they didn't know the truth of the Bible. So what happened was a letter was sent to Paul and it asked him a few questions. And Paul here is going to answer some of those questions, but he's going to make this point. It doesn't matter what you argue with me on, he says. It doesn't matter what you think about marriage. Matter. It doesn't matter what you think about money. It doesn't matter what you think about eating meats. In fact, he's going to come back to this in next week's lesson in chapter 10. That's not the main point. What Paul's point was is that I live to spread the gospel, not to please people. And sometimes that means that I'm going to choose to do things that are hard for me. And I'm going to have to endure like a good soldier, like he would later tell Timothy. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to run and, and beat yourself into subjection when you don't feel like it. You're going to have to do hard things, especially when you don't feel like it. But Paul says, I'm not just going to tell you to do that. I'm going to show you. And that's what this chapter has to do with. He's going to talk about all the change that you have to go through as a Christian, and he's going to sum it all up with this statement, be all things to all men. Let's look at the, our first point. Number one, what does it look like to be all things to all men? Well, first off, it looks like you know your rights. You know your rights. And this doesn't mean your amendments. It doesn't mean that you have the Constitution memorized. It means that you know who you are in Jesus. And you know that because Jesus saved you, you are free. It means that because Jesus saved you, you answer to him, not to their, not to anyone else's claims or to their authority or to their, uh, their judgments. 
It means that you only answer to Jesus because he is the one who commissions you to spread his word. He is the one who gives you the strength and the words to share and the actions to take. And through the Holy Spirit, you are directed and commanded to do certain things. So you know that your right is to be free in some ways. Let's look at verses 1 through 18. And we're going to see some of those arguments that I just mentioned he brings up. Look at verse 1. He asks this question, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet indeed I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, you guys want to doubt my apostleship? Um, Other people might be able to do that. But if anybody can, it's not you. Because you're the church that I started. That would be like a modern day missionary um, serving Jesus faithfully in another country. And then those people writing him a letter and questioning whether he's really a missionary. Like he started that church. Why do you have the audacity to question that? That's what Paul says. If anyone else wants to question that, maybe they can, but you definitely can't. You are the proof. You are the seal. You are the stamp of my apostleship in real life. So verse three, this is my answer to those who examine me. He just, he finishes it right there. Verse four, do we have no right to eat and drink? Again, to eat and drink um, that which was offered to idols, but then also to eat and drink as they were paid to do so, because you know that you can't eat if you don't work. He would actually teach that in Thessalonians, which we learned about. He says, verse 5, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles, or brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter, who, remember, already had a little group of people who were kind of riled up against Paul? Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Hmm. Does that mean that Barnabas and I are not allowed to refrain from from being a tent-making apostle, so to speak, a tent-making church planner? What that means is that while Paul lived here in Corinth, he took up the work of making tents. Now, every Jewish boy was taught some sort of trade, and the trade that Paul was taught was tent-making. And so... He figured out, i got to make some money because I'm not going to choose to take any money from this church that I planted. And in order that I can reach more people, I'm just going to work with my hands. So he did. And he was as much at home as, you know, threading the needle as he was speaking to kings and palaces, speaking to great crowds and, and wooing them to the gospel. He was comfortable with both. So he did both. And as a tent making apostle, He worked with his hands, and yet people said, if you were a true apostle, you wouldn't have to do that because God would bless your ministry enough that you would be paid by the ministry. That's what they said. It's so foolish what people connive in their own brains. They discount the work of the Lord. Verse 7 asks this question. Who goes to war at any time in his own expense? So what king do you think is going to pay for his own country's war out of his own pocket? The answer is no one. No one does that. The second question, who plants a vineyard but does not eat of its fruit? Or who feeds a flock but does not drink of the flock's milk? Verse 8, he asks this question, do I say these things as a man? Am I a greedy person for saying that I should be able to partake of of our own spoils here as a church? 
Or does the law not say the same thing also? Verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of an ox while it treads out the, the grain. What that means is when, um, when they'd be plowing in a field, in a cornfield, the ox would be able to reach over and grab a piece of corn from one of the stalks and eat it while they were plowing. But if you muzzle the ox, then he's not going to be able to chew anything. And so the Bible says in the law of Moses, don't muzzle the ox so that it can it can eat while you go. New Testament principle here is almost an equal. Let's keep going. Verse, uh, well, I guess same verse, verse 9, at the end of it, it says, is God concerned about oxen or does he say it completely for our sake? For our sake, no doubt, that is written so that he who plows should plow in hope and that he who threshes in hope should partake of this hope. Verse 11, if we have sown for your spiritual things, Okay, he's bringing it back to the current situation here at Corinth. If we, the apostles who started this church, if we, the church planters here, if we, the missionaries to your city, Corinth, have sown for you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we should reap your material things? And he asked the question, if we have done this work, if we literally make our living preaching to you, then is it a, a big ask for us for you guys to support us? Verse 12, he says, if others partake of this, what's the word there? Right. If others, not apostles, partake of this right over you, should we not instead? And he asks this question. If your pastor's there, can be taking money from you, from your offering, to survive on, to feed his family, then shouldn't we be the ones who are doing that? That's what Paul says. We were the ones who gave your church birth. We were the ones who started this, this church. Shouldn't we be the ones who are more entitled to that right? Now, he doesn't negate that the other pastors there that would be doing this had a right to that. He wasn't saying that they didn't. He was just saying that we, of any of us, probably should also be doing that. But then verse 13, he builds this, um, I'm sorry, in the second half of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but suffer all things, lest we might hinder the gospel of Christ. Here his argument isn't that they shouldn't have taken money from the church. It's not that the church shouldn't have paid him. His argument is, has nothing to do with the should or should not. It has everything to do with we chose for the gospel to be more important to us. This isn't a big treatise, a big explanation of how to pay pastors. I do think it has some of those principles, and maybe someday we'll come back to that, especially when we start taking on new staff members, and there's some principles around that that we can certainly grab from this. But the point of this chapter the point of these three chapters, 8, 9, where we are tonight, and 10 for next week, is that we do things for the kingdom, not for ourselves. It's that I die to myself so that others may live, just as Jesus did. It's that I am all things to all men. Now, zoom out for just a second. Let's go transport ourselves back 2,000 years into the city of Corinth. People are wearing togas. The streets are dirty and dusty. You can see the port over there. You can maybe hear the temple worship happening behind you and the, the animals getting ready to be slain. And then you hear this story 
from one of your friends. You're a Corinthian who's not a Christian yet. You hear this story about this man who had a vision on a road that he saw God. And he's come to you, and he's actually starting an assembly. In fact, they don't even call it a temple. They just call it an ecclesia, which is the word for a gathering place. It's not even a church. Like we think of church as church. We think of a town hall meeting as a town hall meeting. Think of it more as a town hall. He's not even calling it a temple. He's only calling it a town hall meeting. It's just a gathering place where people get together. Sounds pretty easy to get in. I don't know. Normally in our worship, we have to do more to be a worshiper. We have to sacrifice something. We have to kill something. We have to bring money. Oh, well, actually, he wants to make money, though. He's going to teach you about it, and you can become what he calls a Christian, I think is the term. You can become a Christian if you listen to this man named Paul. But in order for him to keep teaching you, you have to pay him. Otherwise, he's going to have to go to another town and bring the good news somewhere else. That sounds scammy. That sounds like something, if that were to happen here, that people wouldn't want to bite on because it's not normal, and they don't know how church works. They don't know how pastoral ministry should work. But that's what Paul did, except all the scamminess. He did go to the town. He did have the vision in the road. He did start telling as many people about the good news as he could. But instead of charging them in their minds to keep coming back to teach him, otherwise he'd have to move on, he stayed there. Instead of only working by teaching, Unlike the other teachers, unlike the other temple priests that would be there, he actually worked with his own hands and built tents. Unlike the other people who might have been these false prophets who have to move on as soon as the water or the money dries up in the area, he actually stayed there for years at a time. On top of that, he stayed in touch with the church after he did have to move on. That's what ministry looks like. And that's what non-scammy ministry looks like. Scams say, hey, we have all this great stuff, but you have to pay an arm and a leg for it. Your mom worked for, um, what's his name? For Jimmy Swagger. Yeah, and she cashed the checks. And there was so much money that came through there, just as long as you paid for it, you would be prayed for. That's not okay. When you buy that anointing oil or the holy water or the prayer veils or the, the tea towels or whatever else they can contrive to start blessing over, you're just paying right in the money, right into the pockets of the scam artist. Paul did not want to be scammy. He didn't want to seem like the kind of person who was only there to take. He only wanted to give. And he knew that the gospel would go farther, faster if he could give, 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 and literally never ask. I think our church should adopt that mentality too. Give, 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 never ask. Now that's not, not that we never have anything to ask for. It's not that we won't take when people are willing to give back, but it is that I think if we want to come across as a loving church full of the gospel, I think we have to give first. We love him because he first loved us. Our church will be loved because we first loved them. I think that's how we're going to have to work our way into this community, but I also think that that's how Paul worked his way into Corinth because he was more concerned with spreading the gospel than he was making a paycheck. Now. People, people who get into ministry for the paycheck, I'm going to be a Christian anyway, so I might as well make money doing it. I literally heard a pastor say that one time. And I was like, you are not 
in the right business. Get out of this. You are misleading your church. That is so irresponsible. People who get into the ministry because of the paycheck are wrong. People who stay in the ministry because of fear of losing a paycheck, the churches that make them feel that are also wrong. I think biblically churches should be taking care of their pastors and and their missionaries and the school teachers that we hire and those professors and things. That's important, but that's not Paul's point. His point is that I know my rights, but then number two, I also know my mission. Know your mission. He says in, in verse 13, Do you not know that those who minister unto holy things live from the things of the temple? And do you not know that those who wait on the altar partake of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has ordained. He says it very clearly. The Lord has ordained that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. That means they make a living because they preach the gospel. But I have used none of these rites. And here's where his mission comes in. Nor have I written these things that it should be done to me. For it would be better for me to die than allow anyone to make my boasting void. Therefore, I preach the gospel. I'm sorry. Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for the requirement is laid upon me. Yes, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. So if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a commission. What is my, my reward then? Truly that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge so that I might not abuse my authority in the gospel. And then verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself servant to all. And here's why. Here's his mission. That I might win even more. You want to know what your mission is? It's so that you can win even more. And if you know what your rights are, then you know who you are in Christ. You know that you're redeemed. You know that you have certain responsibilities and you are free from people's judgments. You don't have to always be looking over your shoulder trying to find out if they approve or not. You just do what God gives you to do and let him take care of the rest. He says when you're at peace with God, he makes even your enemies to be at peace with you. So let him take care of them because they don't see the gospel the same way that you do in truth and in verity and in confidence. So you know your rights before Jesus, but you also have a mission from the very same Jesus who gave you the rights. Because if you weren't saved, the rights wouldn't exist. Just like if Paul weren't called to be an apostle, he would have never been entrusted with the rights that he talks about here, specifically about marriage and traveling with his wife, and then specifically about um, eating and drinking, and specifically about being paid. Those are specific little examples of a much greater picture. This is my freedom in Christ, and I'm going to choose to close off that freedom at times so that I might even win more. When we're willing to do anything to win somebody to Jesus, that's when we have our mission right. And sometimes we're not even willing to stop arguing with someone before we try to even win them to Jesus. Sometimes we're not willing to stop listening to things in public that you know they don't think Christians do. Like Mike, sometimes we compliment the tattoo, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's not that we're maybe literally going around pointing out tattoos, but it is that we're doing things that the world doesn't think Christians do. For instance, like like cuss words. Does the Bible specifically say that in the Bible, that that is a wrong thing? So far, I haven't been able to find it. So by the letter of the law, is saying cuss words against 
you? Like, is that against God? I haven't seen it. But by the perception of the world, do Christians use cuss words? No, and they know that. So whether you agree with that or not, when you're out in public, is the best response to stabbing your toe drop in an F-bomb? It's probably not. It's not going to help you win more people to Jesus. And so you might be free to do certain things. You might be free to say certain things or to, to act certain ways or to listen to certain music or on and on it goes. But if you're not going to be able to get people closer to Jesus, then why would you want to do it? Because is the main point my comfort and my freedom in the gospel? Or is it the fact that I can help someone else find theirs? I want more people to be free because my freedom to do what I want is not as important as their freedom from the chains of sin and death. That's got to be more important to us. And our mission has to be that we might win even more. He goes on. He says to the Jews, verse 20, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews to those who are under the law. He acted as under the law. Verse 21, to those who are outside the law, as outside the law. And then he clarifies being, of course, not without God's law, but under Christ's law. Then I might win those who are outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. You've heard that verse before. Verse 23, watch this. This is, this is your mission. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I might partake of it. What is it? The gospel. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I might partake of the gospel with you. See, when our rights are our focus, I want to partake of the gospel. The gospel frees me. It holds me. It keeps me. That's me partaking in the gospel. The guilt that I don't have to feel is my partaking in the gospel. But bringing somebody else and saying, hey, come see what I have. And now me and him, we both get to partake in the gospel. That's when it matters. And that's what our church is built to do, to go into the world and to reach people with the gospel. That's what you are to do to find someone to bring alongside you and show them what God's done for you and to partake in that with them so that you and your brother, you and your sister can enjoy a relationship with Christ together. That's when it matters, and that's where your mission is. But it doesn't matter if we only do it for the outside appearance. Because we can save a bunch of people in our minds. We can go on endless excursions to go reach people. There's an old uh, Romanish legend that contains an, an interesting truth to me. Um, I read this from Charles Spurgeon. He said, There was a brother who preached very mightily and who had won many souls to Christ. And it was revealed to him one night in a dream that in heaven he would have no reward for all he had done. He asked to whom the reward would go, and the angel told him it would go to an old man who used to sit on the pulpit stairs and pray for him. Well, maybe so, but both would most likely share in their master's praise. 
We shall not be rewarded, however, simply according to our apparent successes. Our apparent successes are not the same as true success. And when our mission is, I've lived, when our mission, when we think my mission in life as a Christian is to be free in the gospel, that is a mission, yes. But that's just the beginning of a mission. Because the real mission begins when we get outside of ourselves and start thinking about the world around us. That's when our apparent successes become true successes. That's when we're willing to do anything from preaching in the pulpit to praying on the pulpit steps for the other one doing the work. Sometimes we get jealous and we we get pent up and we, we get frustrated with other people that God's using in different ways when really we should just be celebrating that another person came to Jesus. We don't have to be the only ones because God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. So let's share in that with somebody else and bring them alongside so that we might win even more and share in the gospel. And that's where number three, we need to run to win. Verse 24. Do you not know that all those who run in a race run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now what that means, uh, it reminds me of when I was in seventh grade and I was a paunchy lover. That was literally what they called me. A paunchy, which means fat, and lubbered, which means someone unsteady on his feet. I was a paunchy lubbered. And they said it so nicely in the PE dressing room when we would get ready. They were like, oh, you're just paunchy. You're not fat. You're just paunchy. When they have to start qualifying what kind of fat you are, you're just fat, okay? That's what's happening. And that's where I was in life, um, everywhere. <laughs> so I could cover the whole field at once and not move. I joined the soccer team. And for me, it was an accomplishment when we did suicides, if I can make it all the way to the half line and back without stopping. So there's the six-yard line, there's the 18-yard line, then there, there's the half-yard line. It's about 40 yards on that side soccer field. And so you go to the six-yard and back, to the 18 and then back, and then to the half line and back. You know how suicides work. Well, I would, I would count it a victory, a sincere win at my seventh grade roly-poly self making it all the way to the half line and back without stopping. And that's when I would completely jettison practice, not care what they were thinking, go over to the fence, grab my water bottle, drink as much of it as I possibly needed, and then continue. And if I were last, I didn't care because I had water and you didn't. So who's the real loser here? So I, I counted it a victory for myself whenever I simply ran. Didn't have to do with winning. <laughs> that was not even in the question. Getting the first, there were 20 kids on that team and getting like 24th was okay with me at that point. Like I just, it wasn't a consideration to win, but then I realized that there are consequences to not winning any suicides ever. And that was that I got a grand total of like eight minutes playing time that whole season. And it stunk because I knew the game. Like you could tell me, I, I will plan you a game at that point, I knew everything about soccer there was to know. I could literally tell you every kind of football cleat football. Like, that's, that's the kind of people that I watched. Okay, they weren't even Americans. Okay, they called it football boots. <laughs> I could tell you every kind of soccer cleat that there was, with the advantages and disadvantages, which kinds you wanted, which kinds you did not want because they were cheap, uh, which kinds were Nike. 
Um, and then I could tell you like how to curve the ball. I could do all these special trick shots. I could do all these like little fake things with my little thunder thighs and like get people out. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was intellectually very good at soccer, but it doesn't matter if you can't outrun a sloth. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And that's where I was in life. And that netted me like no playing time really. So I decided that next year was going to be different. And I stopped trying to run, and I started trying to win. You see the difference? Everybody in a race runs, but not everybody wins. That's when I would go home after soccer practice, and I would run four or five miles after soccer practice, which was usually another two or three miles. I would go in, and I started to try to lift weights as much as I could, and I would do like tricep dips on my bed frame, like whatever I could to get an advantage. If I even thought that it was good, like I was trying it. And then eventually I started to be able to get in the first half. And then eventually by the end of the season, I was able to be in the first three. And then that season, we actually had our JV had the highest scoring season of any Southland ODCA year ever. Like, we've never scored more points than our junior varsity team that year. And that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, at least in part, had I not run to win. And there's a difference in our Christian lives when we just get content with knowing the stuff about the sport, knowing the stuff about the race, and running because, well, we're part of a race and I know that I have to run. There's a difference in that, in running, that we might obtain the crown. And when we run our Christian race with purpose so we can win, that looks different. You're not going to find an Olympian who genuinely believes he's going to win who just slacks every day and who smashes cheese curls and who loves endless hours of binge-watching Netflix. Like You're not going to see that in a top-tier athlete because they don't run to run. They run to win. And we should never be bottom-rung Christian athletes, so to speak. We should always be running to win. Always be going into every service, God, what are you going to say to me today? God, I'm, wi I'm willing to do whatever it is that you tell me. God, I know that right now I'm distracted. I don't have focus. I'm, I'm unclear in my thoughts. I know that there's a lot going on in my life. God, help me to have focus so that I can learn what your word has to say and how you want to speak to me. You go into your prayer time expecting to meet with God, not just expecting to talk to the air. You go and you sing songs and worship expecting to tell God what you feel about him because you do love him and because you do celebrate him. That's what running to win means. But sometimes we just come into church. We come into our Christian lives. We even go on visitation and reach people with the gospel because we're running, not running to obtain. And it's sad. We know our position before Christ, our rights in Jesus. We're even willing to fight for those. You know, on occasion, we'll, we'll maybe give up those rights for the greater cause, for the, for the good that we're doing. But that takes it, that's like baseline. That's like baby Christian, you've been saved for like two seconds. That's where we are here. Running that we may obtain is a whole nother league. And that's where we should be. Because Paul was. 
I think it would be tragic if we fail to do this. Let me show you what this looks like. He contrasts some of this. He says in verse 25, everyone who strives for the prize exercises self-control in all things. (coughs) Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Now he's referencing the Corinthian games, which were the Roman version of the Olympics. And they were actually at this time even bigger than the Olympic games. They're running for a fake crown for something that's going to die. And even if it were made of real gold would still end up being burnt away someday in, in the end times. So they run for a corruptible crown, but we for an incorruptible one, we run for a prize that is eternal. So therefore I run not with uncertainty, so, fight, so I fight, not as one who just beats the air, not as somebody who just shadow boxes. He actually gets in the ring with humans. But verse 27, but I bring and keep my body under subjection, lest when preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's a man um, named Horatio Spafford. And he wrote a song that you know called It Is Well. And he wrote that song over the place that three of his children died in a great shipwreck. His wife made it to London. I have the story right. They were going from America to England. He was in America. One of his sons died at four in America. She traveled with their three daughters to England, and she alone made it. She sent a telegram over to him in America. And that that telegram said, saved. Great hope. But it also said alone. And those two words meant everything and nothing to him. She was saved, the love of his life. But she alone was saved. That's what it looks like, too, when we as Christians are saved alone. We're just fools boxing at shadows. We get all ready for the race, but we never actually sign up to run it. We run, but we don't think that we're ever going to win. We go at ministry with our eyes shut, and our heart never actually starts beating hard because we only care about being saved And when God sees that, he sees saved alone. When I see it, I think, I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to be preaching the gospel and I myself not even be running the race. So run to win. Know who you are in Jesus. You are free. You have rights and you can enjoy and celebrate that freedom that you have in Christ, that liberty. Also know what your purpose is. Know that there's a mission that you're on. And it's not just about celebrating your own salvation. It's about bringing others into it. But then don't just be content with having liberty and bringing others into salvation. Run that you may win. Everybody can accidentally get a victory. But winners can decide when they have a victory. And we are always to be the kind of person who runs with purpose. Our church should be one that can reach our world.
Let's pray. God, you are good. And thank you for your word and the way that it inspires us. And I ask that you would lead us to a place where we want to lead others to you, to a place where we do know our position before you, our liberty in you, and that we can celebrate that and partake in it, but also that we would bring others to be partakers alongside you with us. And then help us finally to run that we can win and that we can obtain this prize, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I ask that you would give us clarity for how to do that. Speak to us during the day. Show us when there's an opportunity to set aside our liberty or when to exercise it. And show us when it's time to just go all out on a a spiritual sprint so that we might win some, that we might win even more. I ask you for wisdom. I ask you for discernment that we can all make the right choices. But I also ask you for strength that we would have the courage to do the right things and to make the right calls throughout the week. I know that you're going to do all these things because it is your will that more come to you. I ask that you'd use us to do that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.